Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Today I'm with an old friend who's going to take me round the shops of London once again. My name's Diane Burstein and I'm a qualified London Blue Badge tour guide. My website is www.secretlondonwalkingtours.co.uk. So have a look at that to find out about the tours I do. And if you would like to contact me and join my mailing list, it's Diane, D-I-A-N-E, at secretlondonwalkingtours.co.uk. You can also follow me on TikTok, Twitter, and that is at Guide Diane. Hello, Diane. Hello, nice to be back. Well, now, the last time we were together, you took me shopping. And I have to say, it's not something I thought I was going to enjoy. But having spent that time with you, visiting all those stores and shops, I thought it was fascinating. Well, men never do think they're going to enjoy shopping, really. (laughs) No, absolutely not. So I thought, you know what, let's get Diane back and we go shopping again. Okay. So what I'd like to do, um, one of the things that fascinates me is... Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Waitrose. Mm. Where did they all start? Now, I live in Holborn. Yeah. And every time I go to the Sainsbury's, my wife nags me yes. and tells me, well, Sainsbury's started round the corner. So can we put that theory well, to the Drury test? Well, Lane was the first shop in the 1860s. I think 1869 that started up. So that was one of the first. Um, and they developed this network of dairy-type shops. So you might remember going to some of these. I certainly do as a child, where you went into a shop which had these marble counters and there were women who were all dressed in white with white caps and they used to slice out the cheese and the butter for you. And even then, in the 1960s, it seemed quite old-fashioned. And it was only a matter of years, really, before they were going to be opening their supermarkets because it went down. It was a John Sainsbury who started up the company and it was just really him and then him and his wife running these stores. There was one in Watney Street Market as well. Right, so was it a rapid growth? I mean, as I say, 
say, I've been told he started in Drury Lane, back of Holborn, near Covent Garden. Yes. Um, so did he sort of rapidly expand or was it a slow growth? No, quite quickly they started to uh, open up other stores. So you had the one that was in Holborn and then um, they went down to the east end of London to uh, Watney Street Market okay. and uh, they opened a Sainsbury's there. And it's interesting because some of the places where they opened the Sainsbury's, you would get the small Sainsbury's and then when they opened up the supermarkets, they would open a large Sainsbury's supermarket nearby and they got the idea of the larger Sainsbury's supermarket by uh, Alan Sainsbury who was one of the descendants of the original Sainsbury. He went to America and he saw the self-service supermarkets there and he realised that this was the way forward. But there was a period when both were operating alongside each what, other. What, the smaller Sainsbury's? The smaller which we've, ones. We've, we've got those again now, The smaller we? ones, yeah, but they were very different to your local Sainsbury's that you go to now, your small Sainsbury's supermarket right. that you go to now or your small Tesco's are just a smaller version of the larger supermarket, whereas these were totally in contrast because uh, nothing was self-service. You would go up to the counter, you would ask for what you wanted. Oh, but they were different from the other grocery shops because even into the 1950s and 60s, they weren't doing so much of the pre-packaged stuff, although they, they did go into that and went into groceries. But it was one of those where you went up to the counter and you said, I'll have my half a pound of butter. And they so were... What point did Sainsbury's become the sort of Sainsbury's we know now? Roughly what time? Well, really in the 1960s, that's when right. they started opening up the uh, supermarkets. And uh, as I say, they had their other stores alongside and then gradually the supermarkets took over the large supermarkets and they expanded and expanded and then, of course, went into the mega shops that we, we know. Yeah. have today. Yeah. And at one time they were running another brand called Saver Centre as well that they took oh, over right, okay. so they really uh... so let's say we've finished shopping in Sainsbury's yes and Take me to Tesco. Tell me about Tesco. Well, Tesco's, Tesco's uh, started in a different way because whereas Mr Sainsbury started off with this little shop in Drury Lane, you had Tesco's and they started off with market stalls. So you had this guy called Jacob Cohen who was a Jewish immigrant and he started off as many immigrants did. Um, uh, well, originally his father was a tailor and his father wanted him to go into tailoring, but he wasn't interested in that and he joined the RAF. And so he was the with the RAF. Uh, this was at the time of the First World War, really. And then afterwards, he started selling uh, parachute material. Oh, so, what was left over from yes, the war. Yes, that's right. right. So that's how it started off, an ex-Naffy goods and that sort of thing. Very enterprising. And he had various market stalls. And then he started to supply other stalls. So he was into expanding straight away. And there is a myth that you will often hear that Tesco is called Tesco because Mr Cohen, who changed his name from Jacob to Jack, married a woman called Tessa. Well, no, he didn't. He married a woman called Sissy, <laughs> Sissy Fox. Uh -huh. So, uh, and it didn't become Cisco either because he went into business temporarily with a man called T.E. Stockwell, who was a manufacturer and seller of tea. 
And they had this idea that they would buy a pound of tea for nine pence a pound and then sell two pounds for uh, six pence each, so making a profit. And when they went into this business venture together, it was uh, T.E. Stockwell and Mr. Cohen. So they became... Tesco. Tesco. Oh, so, so that's, that's where the name came the from. Name. And uh, then they went into shops and they had a shop in the arcade, if you know the little arcade over at Tooting. Yes, I do. The 1930s arcades there. That's where they had their first indoor shop. So it was in an indoor market. And then they decided to open a shop away from the market. And that was over in Burnt Oak in northwest London. Oh, wow. So, uh, exactly, on the opposite side of London. And uh, then they expanded from there. And of course, his son in law's took over the building, uh, uh, the uh, business. So okay. uh, that was how that... So we'll move on from Tesco's. Uh, we will come back later because I do want to talk to you about some street markets because obviously yeah. at my age, I remember street markets were thriving businesses. Oh, but yes. we'll come back yes. to those a little yeah, bit later yeah. in, the, in the afternoon. Um, wh- where I'd like to go to next is sort of Waitrose stroke John Lewis. Okay. Well, John Lewis and Waitrose, I mean, they were, sep- they were separate businesses. Yes. So Waitrose were into uh, little shops like... Sainsbury's. Uh, so you had John Lewis. They started off with a man called John Lewis, who was a draper. That's how lots of the department stores started off. And he opened his draper shop in 1864 over in Oxford Street. And Oxford Street then had a number of small shops. So you had uh, draper's shops and you had shoe shops and you had milliner's shops. That sort of so thing. they were all individual shops, so not they like were the Oxford individual Street we have today. Shops. And And then 1864, you have John Lewis starting off, but he doesn't start off with a purpose-built department store. He starts off with a small shop. And like before we spoke about Harrods and how they started, well, um, he expanded. So he started off with one small shop and then he brought up other shops nearby. And eventually they knocked down all the small shops and they built a purpose-built department store, which was there until the Second World War when it was destroyed. So what we see today is the post-war building with a wonderful sculpture on the side by Barbara Hepworth, the winged figure on the side of the building. And John Lewis uh, went to buy in 1905 Peter Jones. Oh, what, the store in Sloan Square? in Sloan Square, exactly, because he had his eye on owning other department stores as well. And he heard that Peter Jones was retiring and he walked over from Oxford Street to Sloan Square with £20,000 in his pocket and what handed would 20, it over. £20,000 be and today, thought, I wonder? I think it, but I don't know, it'd probably be like going over, walking over with a million pounds in your pocket to hand over for the store. He could have got and a cab. And he bought it and then, <laughs> Yeah, I know. Then he handed over the business uh, later to his son in 1914, who was called John Speeden Lewis. And Speeden, he really made the business what it is today because he introduced the idea of all his workers being shareholders because his father wasn't that good at industrial relations, really. And so... He thought he didn't want any problems with unrest from the staff. So he would make the members of the staff partners in the business. And that's where when why when you go into John Lewis's today and you will see the people who are serving there, they will have on their badge not 
sales assistant or sales associate, but partner. Partly, yeah, so I've they're seen partners many times, yeah. and uh, introduced all sorts of things like company social clubs. And also, he started off that slogan of never knowingly undersold. Yeah. So if you buy something there and then you see it somewhere else and it's cheaper, well, you can get refunded. The difference. So uh, he started a lot of what we know about the store today. But going back to the original Mr. John Lewis, he ended up in prison. And the reason he went to prison, he didn't embezzle the company or anything like that, is because when he was expanding his store, he expanded backwards into Cavendish Square. So today you can either enter from Oxford Street or you can enter from Cavendish Square, That's where which the taxi is rank round is on the back. Cavendish exactly. Square, yes. And when he was expanding back there, because it was a residential square, Lord Howard de Walden, who was the landowner, yeah. said to him, well, you can expand into the square, but I don't want any advertising on the square or any plate glass windows put in displaying goods. It all has to be discreet. But John Lewis didn't take any notice, basically. He broke those rules. He uh, put up signs there. And so, as a result, he was taken to court by Lord Howard de Walden for going against the agreement. And he was sentenced to a prison sentence. I think he was let out quite quickly for good behaviour. But it was very bad publicity, not for him, but for Lord Howard de Walden. Because John Lewis was in his 60s at the time. And Lord Howard de Walden was a young man. And one of the headlines was, uh, Young Lord Sends Elderly Shopkeeper to Prison. It wasn't wasn't really good publicity for him. But it made people feel sorry for John Lewis. So they were more likely to go shop there and shopping there. Exactly, yes. So uh, it it did him some good and it got the store publicity and that's really what you wanted. And they expanded to such an extent that they owned a lot of other shops. So if you think of other shops, you had a shop called John Barnes on the Holloway Road. You had, they had, they took over a lot of the stores that had originally been independent local stores. So, for example, over in Brixton, you had Bon Marche, which was the very first purpose-built department store. Some of that store still remains today as such. The windows are there, aren't they? Well, there are two bits of that store that still remain, actually. You've got on one side of the road, as you say, with the wonderful curved plate glass windows of that store, which was built in 1877. And if you go into the side road off the main high street, you see that you've got the words Bon Marche and the date there. And it was based on a store in France, which was called Bon Marche. And so you went into this wonderful store and they had everything. But the man who started up that one, who was a guy called John Smith. John he, Smith, yeah, bon James, James Smith, yeah, James <laughs> Smith. James Smith, he lost all his money because he had um, gambled and won some money on the horses. And he had no experience of running a department store whatsoever, but he thought that he would have a go. And that's what he did with his winnings. And because he had no experience, although uh, the other shopkeepers in the area were worried that they were going to be put out of business, 
business. They needn't have worried because he had no idea and it wasn't doing very well. But then a consortium of local businessmen took it over and it did become very, very thriving to such an extent that they extended it and built on the other side of the road another building. So that other building is now a pizza restaurant. It's called the department store. And at the back, architect's offices with a private member's club up on the roof there, would you believe? And then Bon Marche is a series of stores. So there's a TK Maxx there and various others uh, right. fronting onto the main street. And then at the back, they've got to offices within the building. So those buildings are still there. And one interesting fact, actually, about Bon Marche is one of their sales assistants was a woman called Violet Sabo. You ah, might have heard, heard of about her. Violet Sabo. So, yeah, and what, she, Second World War heroine. That's right. She was the Second World War heroine. So she went from surfing behind the counter at Bon Marche. She was a local girl from Stockwell. Yeah, just she's up got the a road. memorial. At, at exactly, Stockwell, to yeah. Brixton. And uh, there are several memorials to her, actually. Yeah. And uh, what she did is uh, she um, volunteered for the special operations executive and she did it because her husband was killed during the Second World War and she had a young child, but she then felt that she wanted to do something and she spoke French because one of her parents was French, so she spoke fluent French and she was parachuted into France yeah. and unfortunately captured. And she's the best known of those women spies who went to France because a film was made about her called Carve Her Name with Pride. Yeah, I've seen the film, But yeah. she started off I never knew she in... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. In bon Behind the counter in Bon Marche in Brixton. Oh, so it went story. from this quite mundane yeah. job, really, into uh, being yeah, the life of a spy. So going back to John Lewis, they took over Bon Marche and they were running it 
But and Selfridges also ran it for a while when they were expanding. And John Lewis ran it until the 1970s. And then they decided that they were going to get rid of, uh, rid of a lot of their provincial stores, which they're doing once again. again yes, they are. Today, they're yeah. Online sh- shopping slowing down. Over, yes, the one it? in yeah. Birmingham. So they're closing down a lot of their stores. But they did that also in the 1970s. And also the thing about Brixton, which was a thriving shopping centre. I mean, areas like Brixton and Peckham and uh, also in South London, Streatham, were really thriving shopping centres. But Brixton had Morley's, which is still there today. Quinn and Axton's and Bon Marche. So it had three big department stores within two minutes walk of one another. And they all closed down. Because, of course, the Victoria Line opened. You could be in Oxford Street in 10 minutes yes, from Brixton. Yes, of course. So that would have killed it. And there was yeah. also planning blight because they were going to originally put a motorway through that area as well, right. which they didn't put through there. So a lot yeah. of the buildings were I suppose were that's a worry now down. with the two Westfields, either end of the central line, that yes. you know, anything in between is going to suffer slightly. But well, we I are. think that, you know, a lot of department stores have, haven't yeah, they? definitely. Because, uh, as you say, a lot of people, I don't particularly like to go shopping in Westfield, but a lot of people do yeah. like to go to I like going shopping with you, Diane. <laughs> so let me take me somewhere else. I'll tell you another shop that I, I I'll be honest, I only go there at Christmas. Yeah. Fortnum and Mason's on Piccadilly. Fortnum and Mason. Well, that's wonderful. And um, 1707, that's been going since. And Fortnum and Mason started off with a Mr. Fortnum who was a footman at St. James's Palace. And he was a footman a footman to Queen Anne. And he noticed that they were quite wasteful at the palace. So they would have these candles in the candelabra And often they didn't burn right down. So you'd have about three quarters of a candle, half a candle left, and they were just throwing them away. So he did an early form of recycling. He got them out of the bin and he was selling them to people. And at the time, he was lodging with Hugh Mason, who thought, oh, this is a good man to go into business with. So they went into business together and they were selling things that had been thrown out at the palace, bed linen. Apparently, often when they changed the bed linen, they would just throw it out and Fortnum and Mason realised that this could be washed and it could be sold and it was perfectly okay. So they started off with secondhand goods, really, but then they branched out into food and that is how they really made their names with the luxury hampers that, that we you know today, see yeah. today. Yeah. And those hampers were sent all over the world. So, for example, during wars like the Peninsula War, they sent them to the Duke of Wellington on the battlefield. During the Crimean War, they sent beef tea to Florence Nightingale. They even sent a hamper, and this was a bit of a sick joke, to the suffragettes when they were in prison on hunger strike because the suffragettes had come and smashed their windows. So it was a little bit of getting your own back there, I think, really. Yeah, definitely. But they also sold things like... Heinz baked beans. They were the first people to sell that in this country. Apparently, oh, right. Back so, Fortnum and Masons were the first back people in to the sell Heinz 1890s, yes. Oh. And apparently, they were the first people to sell Scotch eggs, which they invented as a sort of picnic treat because a lot of people were getting their hampers to go on journeys. So, the sort of food that you might eat on a journey. And the original Mr. Fortnum, his grandson, 
then went into the business and continued it. And he too had been a footman, this time to King George III. And, of course, there was a play that was written about George III, The Madness yeah, King George yeah, III, that yeah. was made into a movie. Yeah. And if you watch that film or see the play, there's a scene where Mr Fortnum, who's one of the characters in it, uh, says, I'm fed up with this, I'm going to open a grocery store. Well, we know it didn't quite start that way because his grandfather had already opened the grocery store right. and he went into it. And if you stand in front of the store, my favourite thing is to get there just before the hour and you could see Mr Fortnum and Mr Mason coming out of the doors surrounding a clock and Mr Fortnum is holding his candelabra and they bow to one another and they go back in. Yeah, I've seen and, it many times. Uh, you've seen it yeah. many times. And that clock's only been put there in the 1960s, so that's fairly... Oh, right, uh, so it's, it's quite new in That's, in fair, that's fairly yeah. recent, but it, oh, right. it harks back to the history of how the store started off. And, of course, you've got Mason's Yard, which you'll know just off Duke Street, yeah. and that's where they used to keep the delivery uh, horses and carriages, which okay. they used to deliver. A couple of galleries down there now, I think. That's yeah. right, yes, yes, yeah. yes. That's where John met Yoko at oh, the Indica it? Art Gallery, which is now, uh, it's now got another name. Uh, yeah, Ormkins, it might be White Cube. I, I know there's a couple no, of art galleries No, it's not White, White Cube, there. it's right in the centre. That was an electricity substation, was the uh, White Cube okay. Gallery. So, Diane, let's come out of Fortnum and Mason's because you're making me hungry. Um, yeah. What other shops do you think I should know a little bit about? OK. Well, one shop that I like looking around in is Heels on the Tottenham Court Road. Oh, yeah. I bought some stuff and, from there in the past. Um, of course, the Tottenham Court Road was, until very recently, associated with furniture. A lot of those furniture shops closed down during the pandemic, actually, and yeah. uh, haven't reopened, which I think is a shame, because I don't know about you. If I want to buy a piece of furniture, I want to go and see oh, it. Oh, absolutely. And sit but on it. The all. problem is with Tottenham Court Road, what they've also done, I think it's Camden Council have done this, and I don't know why, they've stopped traffic from using Tottenham Court Road for its entirety. So it's buses now. So, for example, as a taxi driver, I would often drive up there because you knew you were going to get a job where somebody had bought, you know, not necessarily a three-piece suite, but they'd bought a piece of furniture that would fit in the cab and you could take them. Now you can't do that. But I'm how afraid. often do you buy a bit of furniture where they've actually got it in stock? They'll say, that's just for show, and you have to order it and have it delivered. Yeah, that's what my heels, experience heels, is. I remember buying some lamps <laughs> and things in here. Yeah, I suppose know, so. And um, a, a, a few sort of uh, decorative items for my flat. Yeah, And yes. um, no... It, it, I loved Heels. Yeah, and yeah. Heels started very early on. So it started off with a man called John Harris Heel, who was a feather dresser. And at the time, people in this country weren't putting feathers in their pillows. So you had things like hair in the pillows. So feathers in a pillow was a French idea. And he introduced this and he opened his first store in 1818. And when they expanded, that area was still farmland, a lot of it. And they took over Mr Kappa's farm. And apparently, one of the things in the lease is that they still had to keep cows. So uh, okay. when they first opened, so just, they still uh, just had to... Straight me up, because there's Kappa Streets at the bottom yeah, of the hills, right, little side the farm, street. Yeah. So he actually started off selling pillows. Is that what you're telling me? That's how they started. And oh. then they branched into furniture and bespoke furniture that was being made in the little workshops. Now, the furniture industry was mostly around Shoreditch and Hoxton because yeah. mm. the wood was transported along the canal, which runs fairly near there. So uh, that's where the furniture 
was being made. But then they also started to open furniture workshops in the back streets of Fitzrovia. So you had people making the furniture for Heels. And Heels was able to expand. And what they did is they expanded their store. So you've got today, when you look at Heels, there were the stores that were built in the mid-19th century, and then it was expanded in 1918, and again in the 1930s. So you've got a combination of those two buildings today. So an architect called Edward Morfe built the part of the building where you see all those blue and white reliefs with pictures yeah. of beds, four poster beds, and that sort of thing. That's the 1930s bit. But you've also got the earlier Cecil Brewer building with his wonderful staircase at the back. And then if you go into that staircase, do you know the Heels Cat yes. that sits on the staircase? This very elegant 1930s Art Deco style cat. And that cat was sold and bought back by Ambrose Rose Heel because he was annoyed with the woman who'd sold it, who happened to be his mistress. And his <laughs> mistress, she was more associated with dogs than cats because her name was Dodie Smith. And she's best known as an author and she wrote 101 Dalmatians. Oh, but she started off story. She started off as an actress and then a playwright and then an author. And when her first play was performed, the headline was Shop Girl Writes Play and the journalists went off to Heels to interview her and they expected to see a woman working as a sales assistant behind the counter. And when they asked for Dodie Smith, they were sent upstairs to the management offices and she was working as a buyer there. And she had this affair with Mr Ambrose Heel, who was a married man, and um, that all ended. And in the end, she married one of her other co-workers and they kept Dalmatians. So she wrote 101 Dalmatians there. But she sold the Heels cat, and he was so annoyed that he bought it back from the person who bought it. I think it was sold for forty pounds. Probably where she and got the inspiration for Cruella de Vil. It sat then. on that staircase. <laughs> that cat has sat on that staircase ever since. Oh, what a great story! Yeah, Fantastic. yes. Now, one of the things I just want to sort of end today with um, is the sort of. I suppose they're not necessarily completely gone, but the street markets. When I was young. Every area had a street market. Yes. We had Chapel Market at the Angel in Islington. Um, I grew up in Walthamstow in East London and we had the longest street market in well, Europe. Well, it's still there. It's still there, but I don't think they're the same. Um, how do you feel? Well, some markets, the markets that are still traditional fruit and veg type markets tend to be the markets in the areas that maybe aren't so affluence. And I think that although British people, we all pay lip service into saying, oh yes, we like the idea of a market, we don't necessarily go shopping in them, whereas people who arrive from other countries do. So it's actually the areas that are more multicultural, where the markets are still thriving as markets where you can buy your fruit and veg and your fish and your meat and yeah. that sort of thing. But you've got other markets that are still there that have changed. So, for example, you go down Berwick Street Market in Soho today and you will find that it's mostly a foodie market, Whitecross Street Market in yeah. the area near the Barbican. So they've gone from 
your fruit and veg and your clothes and your hardware to selling uh, halloumi wraps and that sort of thing that are popular with the younger people today. But really, they're only popular at lunchtime. So a lot of them have gone over to being lunchtime markets. But if you look at the early history of these markets, the busiest time used to be a Friday night. So they would operate into the evening. They'd have little lamps hanging from the market stalls and you'd go with your pay packet on a Friday night and you do the week's shopping there. What's quite interesting is the trajectory of some areas that were market streets and then they stopped being market streets and then they become market streets again, but they're selling something uh, totally different. And you do have that in some of the markets. Um, And some of the markets, um, which were market streets like Exmouth Street, for example. Mainly restaurants there now. Which is mainly restaurants. But Market traders used to not have pitches like they do today. You used to have to go with your stall to the side of the street and then the man from the local authority would come down and blow a whistle and you all had to rush in and get your Grab get pitch. your space yeah. in the past. Some That's streets have, have maintained. I mean, Roman Road Market hasn't changed that much. Yeah, there's um, still the market there. Yeah, and yes. East Street Market and Woolworth has, has remained Yes, well, that's constant. what I mean, because they're multicultural areas. And as I say, people um, from other countries still like shopping in street markets. And as I say, although British people, we all say we like the idea of the local market being there, but do we still go there to do our shopping? Yeah, I suppose it's a good point. If you don't use it, you lose it. To uh, Sainsbury's and... uh, Tesco's. Uh, yeah. I like Broadway Market, but that stopped being a market. Yeah, that's quite a foodie market. And then it came now. back again. So yeah. it went down to one fruit and vegetable, and now it's come back again. But I suppose maybe that's what markets have to do, and the people who are running them have to look at, well, who are our demographic? Who's likely to come and shop here? And then they'll cater for, the, for uh, those yeah. people. I mean, you do get like Portobello Market, for example. Yeah, but that's changed as well, hasn't it? It has, yeah. I I mean, I was down there recently. Um, It's still got its antique segment, but it does sell a lot of things like music and records and things now. That's right, yes. And the antiques, you get more mass-produced stuff now. Yes, you you do. I mean, I I was married to an antique dealer and he would say, oh, it's all repro, when I'd show him pictures I'd taken of the market and the market stalls for one (laughs) of my presentations, you know. So I think that that has changed over the years. But it's interesting how that started because you see the people who first went there and to the new Caledonian market, which is in Bermondsey, Bermondsey yeah, no, it they'd all been off the Caledonian Road, Market Road, in this market that was London's cattle market, where Smithfield had moved to, live cattle market. That gets closed at the time of the Second World War, but on a Friday there, they have a market for second-hand goods. And that was a market, it wasn't a posh antique market for tourists, but it was quite busy and bustling. And after the Second World War, they weren't allowed to go back. So some of the traders went to Portobello Road and other traders went to what's now known as the New Caledonian Market, Bermondsey Square, Square. which became more of a dealer's market. And it was Portobello Road that became more of a tourist market. Well, I love street markets, so I hope that they survive. Diane, once again, thank you so much for taking me shopping again.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.